Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States and Chile. And of course, this week I'm coming to you a little bit earlier than I usually do. And of course, that's in order for those of you who are celebrating Thanksgiving in the United States to get your talking points ready uh, against your, you know, uncles and in-laws. And for those of you who are not celebrating Thanksgiving in the United States, it's for you to commiserate with the people who are having those conversations around their Thanksgiving tables. going to start out this week by letting you know that for the first time ever, the United States has been listed as a backsliding democracy, a democracy that is going in the wrong direction and becoming less democratic. This is from the International Institute of Democracy and Electoral Assistance, which is headquartered in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, the organization compiles information on democratic effectiveness worldwide. So, you know, election disparities, civil rights, access to voting, just like basic democratic function stuff. And this is the first time that the United States has not been listed as a fully functional democracy. The organization says that the United States' democratic backslide began, guess what, in 2019. That is the ramp up to the 2020 presidential election. In the United States, a Trump fundraiser has bragged about having raised money for the January 6th rally. Her name is Kimberly Guilfoyle. She's in serious trouble about this because uh, a lot of folks have been given a lot of subpoenas for their involvement in the January 6th rally, and specifically this kind of connection between official organizing, like official fundraising stuff, and the coup attempt that resulted from the rally. Other folks who are really experiencing serious problems because of their involvement in the coup are Roger Stone and Alex Jones. Alex Jones is of InfoWars, and Roger Stone is a longtime GOP fixer, like dating back from the Nixon administration. This information is coming from CNBC. Apparently, Roger Stone was supposed to speak at the rally on January 6th, and Alex Jones was involved in organizing it. This is an interesting development in the January 6th committee's subpoenas because these people are not involved in the Trump administration officially at all. Alex Jones especially is a propagandist. You know, he runs InfoWars. Uh, the fact that they have been subpoenaed for their involvement in the rally, for their involvement in planning the rally, indicates that the special committee is really, really widening its inquiry. You know, they're, they're really going to be catching anybody that they possibly can who was involved in the rally in essentially any way. This is especially a bad time for Alex Jones because he's just lost some major cases regarding InfoWars' coverage of school shootings over the last decade. The fact that he is now potentially facing a subpoena which could result in some criminal charges brought upon him by the federal government is obviously not something that you would expect him to be uh, excited about. Moving on to some more successful legal cases against the extreme right in the United States, we have two. One is coming out of Georgia, and the coverage that you can follow on is on Vice Media. This is a, uh, a case involving a fascist organization called The Base, uh, which I haven't talked about a whole lot in this podcast. The Base is a straight-up neo-Nazi organization. They emerged long before the Trump administration. They are from, you know, the early 2010s, essentially. Uh, they were involved in a lot of planned attacks, attempted attacks, um, some assaults. 
And two of their activists, two fascist activists, have just this week been found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder. Their target was an anti-fascist activist who lived in their city in Georgia. The two people who have been found guilty are a Mr. Lane and a Mr. Carderly. Uh, each of them has received 13 years in prison for this criminal conspiracy. And they were caught because the people involved in their criminal conspiracy, unfortunately for them, included an FBI plant who had styled himself as a former biker turned neo-Nazi activist. Uh, the plant was involved in the planning of this murder and was able to give the Bureau every piece of information about it, which made it a pretty much a slam dunk case uh, for the federal court. It's part of a long crackdown, which has destroyed multiple cells of the base. However, other parts of it are still active. Uh, most notably, the base's founder, uh, a man named Nazaro, is still escaped in Russia and has been seen speaking and, you know, is apparently alive and active still as late as 2020. Another very successful criminal case against the right wing uh, is a, well, not a criminal case, excuse me, but a civil case was against the organizers of the Unite the Right rally, which, if you recall, occurred in 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia. The rally involved a number of extreme right-wing organizations coming together and operating in the open for the first time, really, since Trump's election in 2016, the previous year of the rally. The rally broke out in violence, uh, and not just violence, but murderous violence. Uh, at the rally, several people were injured, and one activist who was there protesting the fascist organizations that had created the rally was killed. The person that they killed was Heather Hare, and she was killed by a fascist who ran a car into a number of other protesters, injuring several and killing her. Now, this isn't the criminal case involving that. This is instead a civil case brought against the organizers of the event. And these people are really a who's who of what used to be the alt-right, uh, including the person who really popularized the term, Spencer, Richard Spencer. But there are other people involved as well as plaintiffs in this case. Uh, for example, a Kessler and Cantwell, both of them are uh, extreme right-wing activists, neo-Nazi types. Together, they must pay the plaintiffs in this civil case $25 million in damages. Additionally, they potentially face federal charges under a federal act known as the KKK Act. Uh, this reporting is coming out of NPR, so you can check that out if you want to know more. Specifically, the KKK Act is a way for people who take neo-Nazis and fascist types to court to get actual, you know, information uh, and potentially found criminal charges against them when it would be really, really hard to do so otherwise through the normal legal system because of the fact that generally those organizations are protected by more local types of law enforcement. Finally, continuing talking about the legal uh, cases that came about this week, of course, I have to talk about the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. If you are a listener of this podcast, I assume that this is not the first you're hearing about the fact that the trial resulted in acquittal. Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty on all counts. Uh, that means that, according to the state, he did not murder anyone and did not unlawfully shoot anyone. This means that his defense, which was defense, self-defense, was his claim of uh, the two people that he 
killed and the one person whom he shot. Uh, this means that his claim of self-defense is apparently valid. What this means is that arguably, you can bring a gun to a protest. Claim to be threatened by the people who are threatened by your gun, people that you are pointing your gun at, and then you can kill them because you claim that you are afraid that they might disarm you and use your weapon against you. Essentially, this means that two people who are at a protest and are engaged in potential violence against each other potentially, arguably, have total legal impunity in the United States. Now, obviously, that even that terrifying thing is only on paper. Recall that both Rittenhouse and all three of his victims were white. One can only imagine how a jury or judge in the United States, especially in a state like Wisconsin or a city like Kenosha, would regard a shooter who was not white, claiming that he was defending himself. But the real important thing here isn't about, like, Rittenhouse or even the two people that he killed, I, I, I would have to argue. The important thing here is that this is a major, major step in the direction of increased partisan violence in the United States. Partisan violence of a kind that the United States really hasn't seen since the 1960s. This is not to say that the United States hasn't seen its share of political violence. Arguably, all racialized violence in the United States is deeply political violence of the kind that I'm talking about. But partisan violence, in which citizens go into the streets in order to attack their ideological opponents and use force in order to achieve their political goals, is something different. And especially when it's coming from the right wing, and especially as the right wing is increasingly powerful in the United States, this is an incredibly disturbing trend. The issue here goes much bigger than Rittenhouse's own guilt or innocence. It's about a precedent. And unfortunately, the other aspect of this is that we now know that Rittenhouse is going to be part of the normal right-wing establishment. He has been offered political internships by United States Representatives Cawthorn and Hawley, both of whom have been deeply involved in promoting right-wing ideology and were also involved in the January 6th coup. Uh, Hawley himself saluted the coup attempters as they were trying to enter the House. Rittenhouse has also already appeared on the show of Tucker Carlson, who is arguably the leading fascist media persona in the United States. This means that Rittenhouse is not going to go away, and he potentially might even have a career in politics, which was launched because he killed two people who were trying to stop him from killing other people at a Black Lives Matter rally. This is terrifying and a horrible precedent. Closing out with some outside of the United States news, my apologies, things in the United States have just been particularly shitty recently, uh, so I, I have not been doing quite as much international news as I generally intend to with this podcast. But uh, in Chile, we do have some bad news. In the recent first round of the Chilean presidential election held earlier this week on Sunday, a man named Kast has won the first round. Now, it was pretty close. Uh, he was only a couple percentage points higher than his next most vote-getter opponent, uh, a man named Gabriel Boric. Um, Boric is a former student activist and a sort of left-wing figure and a member of a left-wing coalition. 
Caste, the person who won the first round, is a member of an extreme right-wing political family, the Caste family, which has both ties to Pinochet, his brother was a minister in Pinochet's government, and also to, like, actual Nazi Germany. And I don't mean, like, like, like not like Nazi as, like, an insult, or Nazi as, like, oh, a sort of, like, tertiary connection. I mean, his father was in the Wehrmacht. He wore a Nazi uniform. He participated in World War II for the Nazis. And he then fled to South America after the war. So this means that a plurality of Chileans earlier this week voted for the actual son of a Nazi to be their president. This is pretty fucking terrifying. Of course, Chile, like most countries in the world, has a runoff system for its presidential election. So this means that the upcoming actual deciding of who the president of Chile will be will be between Kast and Boric. Now, that leaves some wiggle room. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that Kast will be president. However, a lot of the other people in this presidential election, in the first round of it, were center or center-right parties, and one of the major vote-getters was a libertarian. Now, this does not bode particularly well for Boric's vote count in the upcoming presidential election. I will cover that when it happens. Finally, going to close out this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures throughout history. This week, we have two. The first is Francisco Franco, the former dictator of Spain who was in power in that country for several decades, from the 1930s up until his death in 1975. Franco ran the country first as a military quasi-fascist dictatorship, and then as a sort of more straightforwardly military dictatorship with some fascist characteristics and aesthetics, as world history marched in a direction that made his actual fascist connections not particularly palatable to potential Western allies. Franco died uh, in a coma this week in history, the 20th of November, 1975. Second, we have Yukio Mishima, a Japanese poet and monarchist militant, who in 1970 tried to influence a number of members of the Japanese military to rise up against the civilian government of Japan and also the American occupation of Japan in order to restore the power of the emperor to its status, to, to the status that the emperor enjoyed during and shortly before World War II. His uprising was a failure and resulted in his ritual suicide along with the suicide and imprisonment of his other coup plotters. Uh, his suicide was this week in history, the 25th of November, 1970. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please share it with your friends, family, and comrades, and leave a review on whatever it is that you're listening to this on. If you really enjoyed the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. All right, I will talk to you next week.